I wrote down the time I'm beginning because I want to end appropriately. You know what it really means, though, when a minister looks at a clock. Nothing. <laughs> By the way, sometimes we complain about our schools that our kids can't read. We have demonstrated that a good many of them can. Over the last several weeks, we've had a lot of our children read our scripture for us, and they have just done a marvelous job. And I congratulate our youth, our children's department, and whoever it is that's their teachers, as well as their parents. So thank you. Um, I always have a commercial. So here's my commercial. On Sunday, uh, April 15th, we're rebirthing Sunday school here. We are reorganizing our Sunday school, uh, and uh, we're going to have two adult classes. I was interested in this morning, I teach the Berean class, which has been the only adult class operating. We had 15 this morning. We had 15 from the people from the 20s and people that were older than I am, believe it or not. And so we had quite a range of ages uh, throughout that class. And I, uh, I enjoyed it. I hope they did. I learned some things. I hope they did. But I want you to know that. Now, on the 15th, Pastor Dave is also going to be starting a Sunday school class. And you won't hurt my feelings if you decide to go to his class. It's okay. Uh, you, you, I would like some of you to stay with me, obviously, because we want to grow our Sunday school uh, to an appropriate size. Uh, the year will be a class for every age, and uh, in, from uh, children, young, uh, from babies to adults. And what I'm asking you to do, you received a card in the bulletin. You have, if you've been here last, if you were here last Sunday, you received this card. And what I'm asking you to do is write down names of people that you know that you would like to see come to Sunday school. Now, the first name here for some of you is yours. All right? So please have a conversation with yourself about coming to Sunday school on the 15th. If you don't normally come to Sunday school, it means you have to come an hour and 15 minutes earlier than you did do now. That's not much. For some of you, it's only an hour earlier than you do now that you need to come. And there's a couple of you that it's 45 minutes earlier <laughs> than you do now. So, but the point, the point is that we would like you to make that list. Now, this list doesn't have to all be people you know by name. It may be a waitress or a waiter in a restaurant that you go to regularly and see them. Or it may be a clerk at the uh, grocery store that you see regularly, as well as friends, relatives, and so on. The fact of the matter is, the majority of the people that come to, to church and come to know Christ are people that were invited by friends, neighbors, and relatives. So we would like you to fill this out and be praying for them every day, asking the Lord to give you a natural opportunity to invite them to come to Sunday school with you. All right? So that's the commercial for today, and we trust that you will do that. All right. Today's Palm Sunday, and it's an important time. And we read uh, Mark, the 11th chapter, 1 through 10, and Jesus wants to share his eternal victory with you. Did you know that? Jesus wants to share his eternal victory with you. This time, this Palm Sunday, 
is the last Sunday before, uh, uh, before the crucifixion. It occurs, it's Passover time, and it occurs about the time that we have Easter. Isn't that unusual? But about the time we have Easter is when the Passover time came and when, it, when this occurred. And this event of the triumphal entry, we call it, occurred on, on Sunday, and the sun was rapidly rising at this particular time. It was beginning to shoot its golden arrows throughout the area. Uh, you are beginning to see the sky glow with the sunrise. And off in the, in the distance, uh, as you went up over the Mount of Olives and started coming down into toward Jerusalem, you would have seen the temple. And the temple would be shining. The temple was layered in many areas with bright gold. And when the sun would hit that in the morning, it would shine right toward the Mount of Olives. And there would be a great light, a great reflection coming off the temple. And this was the day, this particular Passover was the day that people would come from all over the Roman Empire and into Persia to come and to celebrate the Passover together in Jerusalem. It was one of those places where everyone, regardless of where they lived, hoped that there would be a time that they could come to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover if you were a Jew. And so you wanted to come and celebrate this great day. And during this period of time, the, the scholars tell us that more than two million people would crowd the area. Now today we have cities with far more than two million people. But the fact of the matter is, in that day, gathering two million people was almost impossible. How do you feed them? There's no trains, there's no planes, there's no semi-trucks. How do you feed them? What do you do with so many people? But there was an exciting rumor this time that hadn't occurred before. And that exciting rumor was that teacher, Jesus, was going to come to town during this Passover. Jesus is coming. Behind him were his sermons. Ahead of him was his suffering. Behind him were his parables. Ahead of him, his passion. Behind him were the suppers of fellowship. Ahead of him was the last supper with its betrayal. Behind him were the delights of Galilee. And ahead of him was dark Gethsemane. The prophecy was now coming to pass. So let's just walk through those events a little bit and see what happened. Jesus spent the night before this at a home uh, in Bethany. He, um, he was about five miles from Jerusalem, and between him and Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives that was there. He spent a lot of time there in the Mount of Olives. Historians tell us that traditionally there were particular areas where people from different parts of the country came and camped during this time. So when the people would come from Galilee, they, they camped uh, close to the Mount of Olives. That was their traditional camp place. 
That's where they went. And so Jesus spends quite a bit of his ministry in and around the Mount of Olives, and now we know why. Because when you came to Jerusalem, if you came from Galilee, you would be camping in that particular area. The people from Galilee tended to be unsophisticated people, unspoiled in terms of the urbanization that uh, occurred in Jerusalem and in Rome and areas like that. Jesus spent most of his time in and around Galilee, and those people knew him best. In fact, they knew him so well that on a number of occasions they tried to make him king. So they were going to make him king. They were going to force him to become king. And there were several occasions on which the people in the Galilean area were going to go and get him and make him become king because that was the vision of the Messiah that they had. The vision of the Messiah they had was one of a conquering warrior, a conquering king who would come and reestablish the empire of David. Now, in terms of empire as we know it today, it wasn't a very big empire. But to them, it was huge and it was important and and they were looking to reestablish that empire. They believed the Messiah would recreate that empire and so they wanted Jesus to become king. Uh, In Mark, it says of them that the common people heard Jesus gladly. The Galileans were common people, and he was popular among them. In the city of Jerusalem, there were also wealthy, superficially religious leaders. Jesus antagonized them. They were unhappy with him. Jesus described them in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, as scribes and Pharisees, they were hypocrites. See, we often think of Jesus as loving and kind and all those kind of things. The only problem was there were certain people that he told them exactly who they were. And he said to the scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Also among those people were the Sadducees. And they had, been, they had long plotted his downfall. The Sadducees were interesting people because they were what we call Hellenists. They bought into the Greek philosophies. And they tried to meld together the Jewish religion, the Jewish outlook, with the Greek outlook. And tried to borrow the best of both. But the, the other problem that they had, they were collaborators. They were the ones who said, look, the Romans are here. They're the guys with the big stick. We need to get along with them. So we'll do what we have to do in order to stay in harmony with those Romans so they don't bother us. So the Sadducees were those people. And the problem is they had compromised their faith by trying to pr- please their Roman overlords. When you look at the two groups, the people in Jerusalem, particularly the Sadducees, and the people who were camping with the Galileans, the Galileans really had nothing to lose. The Galileans were poor, for the most part. Meanwhile, these guys in Jerusalem were in a good spot. And what happens so often is, if we get too comfortable then we don't want anything to change. Because if it changes, 
it might make us uncomfortable. We might lose some money, we might lose some prestige, people might get angry with us or whatever, and so we don't want to rock the boat. We want to keep things going along as they are. Even though we may be able to stand back and say there's injustice over there, there's evil over there, but if I go and do something about it, it might rock the boat. That's sort of the Sadducees. Let's not rock the boat. Things are going okay for us. Not going okay for everybody, but for us it's going great. So let's leave things the way they are. If we have to compromise a little bit, well, a little bit of compromise won't hurt anything. These city dwellers would do anything to placate the Romans, to keep the Romans off their backs. And in their view, Jesus was expendable because they had a lot to lose. So what's one man if we can keep the country uh, pacified under the Roman Empire and we can keep our position? Jesus was expendable. He was a threat to their religious traditions. They were certain he wasn't the Messiah. He couldn't be the Messiah. He didn't fit their picture of the Messiah. And if he was the Messiah, he rocked the boat too much for them. They had everything to lose, and they didn't want to lose it. Notice in verse 9, there were two groups. There were two groups. There were those who shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. When he describes those who went ahead, we suspect that those were the curiosity seekers. The people that had come out from Jerusalem to see what was going on. What was going on. But those who followed cried out, Hosanna. Our distance from this event tends to make us merge two interesting crowds. There is this one on Sunday at the triumphal entry, Hosanna! And then there is that one later in the week, crucify him! And we look at those two, those two events and say, why did those people change from Sunday to then? Well, we really don't think so. We think those were two separate crowds. Not the same crowds at all. So when one crowd cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, another group was crying, crucify him, just a few days later. It was the jubilant Galileans crying, Hosanna. It was the superficially religious that were crying, crucify him. He might rock the boat. Crucify him. So the whole crux of this, and you're going to hear this several times during this message, is I want you to think about which crowd you identify with. Do you identify with the, the Hosannas, or do you identify with the Crucify Him? And I'm not talking about what you profess orally. I'm not talking about what we say when we come to church. I'm not talking about what we say if a person asks us we're a Christian. I'm talking about how do we live? Do we live as people who, are, who can shout Hosanna? Or do we live as people that are shouting, maybe quietly, but shouting crucify him? How are we living? How are we living? That's the question. 
how are, li- how are, we, are we living? There were, pro- there were provisions for his coming that was made. First of all, when we look at the provisions, one of the things we have to look is at time. At time. Time is critical to everything we do. Doing things at the right time is important. But we have to be careful as Christians not to get weary and discouraged at waiting for God's time. You see, God is the one who is never wrong. And never being wrong means he gets to watch the clock. He's the one that does the timing. We don't have, oops, we don't have to be clock watchers. I don't have to spend my time watching the clock. It's always interesting when I go to my daughter's classroom at the junior high, there are certain kids whose eyes are always on the clock. There are other kids, by the way, that their eyes is always on me or on Valerie because they're, they're, it's really funny because they'll be there and you look at them and they're watching you and then they'll go, you know, and then you look away and you come back to them and they're looking at you and then it's down again. Or they're watching the clock. Now, we have some great kids in these classes that really want to learn and do great things, but we also have a significant minority who are there to watch the teacher, apparently. Uh, That's apparently what they're doing. But the point is that God is the clock watcher. We don't have to be the clock watcher. We don't have to be the clock watcher. Uh, We are the, what we need to do is wait for God's timing and let him watch the clock. Let him be wor- worry about the fact of whether it happens today, next week, a month from now, a year from now, or after we're gone from this life. Let him take care of it. He's the clock watcher. Passover was a celebration commemorating the deliverance of the Egyptians, of the Jews from the Egyptians. And like I say, that occurred about mid-April. Uh, It occurred about mid-April, in fact. The prophet Daniel foretold this. In Daniel, the ninth chapter, in the 25th through the 26th verses, it says, No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, But in times of trouble, after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. What he's saying here is that God has a plan. That's the important thing to take out of this. We could discuss the intricacies of prophecy, and that's all interesting as an academic discussion. But the really important thing we see here is God had a plan. He knew Jesus was coming, and he knew when he was coming. So Jesus went to Bethany six days before the Passover, and he entered Jerusalem the next day. It may have seemed to others as an impromptu activity. Jesus just happened to come He happened to come into Jerusalem. People happened to be there to celebrate. But in fact, it was part of God's plan. It was scheduled in eternity before the world was created. 
he was also dramatizing the fact that he keeps his word. When Jesus says he will, know he will. It may not be in our timing, but know he will. Prophetically, it was written that Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was written that he would be from the tribe of Judah and that he would be the heir to the throne of David, all of which Jesus fulfilled. Thirdly, the materials that are involved. Any project, is imp it's important to have the right materials. If you happen to be a builder, you know how that works. You need to have the right tools at hand. You need to have the right materials at hand in order to get the job done. When I was working at the workday here a while back, uh, Saturday before, what we discovered, we really didn't have exactly the right materials. So we did what we could, but then Dennis had to go out and get us the right stuff. So the next time it warms up, we're going to go back at it again and we'll have the materials and the equipment with us to do the job right. Well, that's the way it needs to be when you're working, right? Well, God is going to have, needs to have the right material in place. Well, what did Jesus need? He needed a donkey. He needed a donkey. Centuries before, the prophet Zechariah had said that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. All along the route, all along the route, he heard that repetition of the prophet. As they beheld him writing, the words would have reverberated in their thought. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew exactly where, what resources were needed, and he knew where they were. They were in the possession of an unidentified disciple. Unidentified disciple. And he needed the use of that donkey. The disciples, the disciple is, a disciple is a learner or a follower. Actually, a learner and a follower. And if you really know Jesus Christ as Savior, and you're following him, you are a disciple. That's who you are. You are a disciple. And so this was a disciple. Every Christian is a disciple. And every Christian is needed to support the cause of Christ. Our Lord has need of us to pray, to study, to give guidance, to support financially, and to be witnesses. We are his disciples. He is in charge. These are things we should do willingly, even spontaneously. We should be willing to do those things that a disciple needs to do. He had the authority to command that that person give up the donkey. But it's interesting that Jesus didn't do that. He sent people to ask. He requested through his disciples the use of the donkey. The question, uh, the, 
one of the questions I would ask today is, are we withholding resources that his kingdom needs? Are we withholding physical resources, money and other things? Are we withholding that from the kingdom? Are we withholding time from the kingdom? Are we withholding effort and responsibility? For some of us, is if you, if, Brother Gods, if you just ask me to do something next Sunday, I'd be glad to do it. But if you want me to do it for the next three months, I might have something I might want to do during that time. And since I have something I might want to do, I don't want to commit to it. Now, I know that all of you that actually heard me know you're not the ones, right? But that happens. We decide to withhold time. After all, that television program might come on at an inconvenient time. After all, the the playoffs are coming up. And we might not want to miss one of those. Time. Are we withholding what the master needs? Are we withholding what the master needs? Now, the purpose of his coming is interesting. He came to cleanse. That's one of the reasons why he came. He came to cleanse. In in 175 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem. And when he conquered Jerusalem, he went to the temple and offered a pig on the altar. Desecrated the temple. The other thing that most, most people know that historically... The other thing that people don't know is he then turned the temple into a house of prostitution. So he really desecrated the temple. It's interesting when we look at the word Epiphanes, which was one of his names, it means the the manifest God. This guy had a little ego problem. He was the manifest God. He was the manifest God. He had an ego problem. He had a spiritual problem. Three years later, Judah Maccabee recaptured Jerusalem and physically he cleansed the temple. Physically. That's where Hanukkah comes from. They needed the light for seven days. They only, they only had enough uh, oil for one. And God renewed the oil. The miracle of Hanukkah has to do with a renewal of the oil. And so Judah Maccabee is captured. And the Maccabean family controlled uh, Palestine for about 150 years in between the Old Testament and the New, when the Romans came. So he cleansed the temple. Jesus came to cleanse the temple spiritually from all the hypocritical defilement. Now we know at one point he went into the temple and he turned over the money changers' tables. But it was more than that. It was more than that. Because he actually came to cleanse your temple. We are the temple of God. And he came to cleanse our temple. Our temple. That's what he wants to do in our lives. He wants a spiritual cleansing. And it's a joyous thing. And if you haven't had that experience, I want to encourage you to seek out that experience of cleansing through his Holy Spirit to be cleansed. He was called King. He was called Lord. The question is, do you use those words for him by your actions? It was a title of respect that was used, by the way. 
much like we say Mr. or Miss or Mrs. It's a title of respect. We talk about the president. And when we say President Obama, President Bush, they are titles of respect that we use. And so we use Lord. And the scripture talks about the Lord of the vineyard. The Lord of the vineyard, meaning the master who was in charge of the vineyard. But it was also used of deity. It was used of deity. The, the Romans mistakenly thought that Caesar was a god. And so they called him, obviously in Latin, Lord Caesar. Lord Caesar. He was the one that they respected. He had the authority. He was the divine God. And so you had to have respect. But who is our divine God? Divine God. It is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Using the word Lord with him is an appropriate term. For he is our Lord. He is in charge. He came to also to identify with his followers. To identify with his followers. Jesus knows the problems you're going through because he was here as a man and went through the same kind of problems. He went through problems that most of us would never experience. But he understands. When you're hungry, he understands. When there's trouble in the family, he knows about it. He was here as well. Well, the perception of his coming. He came, uh, he could have come riding on the wind, but instead he came riding on a donkey. He could have su suffered, he could have summoned the seraphims to bring him, but instead he chose a donkey. The scripture says that all things were created by him, yet he borrowed a donkey. He is the earth's Lord, and yet he borrowed a donkey. The donkey, Jesus didn't come riding a war steed. This is part of what aggravated people, by the way. He didn't come riding a white stallion as a conqueror would, but he came riding as a colt, a symbol of peace. Colts were ridden also by judges. When the judge would come, he would come riding on a colt because he was to be the bringer of peace, of peace by his judgment. They threw cloaks on the donkey. Why? Because the cloaks symbolized his kingship. They used palms. Matthew and Mark and John each use a different word for what was thrown uh, before him. Matthew speaks of young branches or shoots. Mark refers to a mass of straw. Really, when you read that, it's a mass of straw. Um, John speaks of palm branches. Now, who was right? All three of them. All of that was used to line the space that Jesus came down. Each writer simply mentions the thing that struck him most. It is one of, I was interested, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine and he was talking about, well now how do you harmonize the, uh, the synoptic gospels? After all, they say different things. And I said, I don't need to. Because what I know is they're written by three different people that saw it from a different perspective. And if anything, what seem to be differences of description 
tell me this is the truth. If it was uniform, then I would worry about it. If every detail was exactly like the other person's detail, that's when I would worry. But instead, there's just little details that are different because they were different people and saw it from different perspectives. And so they mention what was most striking to them that was thrown in the path of Christ. People, years before, people greeted Judah Maccabees this way, by throwing things as he was liberator of the city. The people were hailing Jesus as liberator also. Hosanna! Christ climactic moment had arrived. He and his entourage mounted the crest of the Mount of Olives coming from Bethany and suddenly the vision of the holy city came before them. Came before them. It was an exuberant, impetuous crowd that shouted Hosanna, that shouted Hosanna Meaning even the angels in the highest heavens of, in the highest heaven cry unto God, save now, save now. And we are called to that. We owe him a great, a great uh, debt of gratitude. For he restored us to a position of fellowship with God if we know Christ. We need to shout, Hosanna! We need to check ourselves and make sure that we're not among the crowd that says, crucify him. Crucify him. Which crowd do you identify with? Crucify him? Or Hosanna? How do you live? What are the most important things in your life? Evaluate that. I know from experience it's hard to keep things in the right order. Life impinges on our good intentions very often. The question is what's most important to you? Does Christ come first or does he come where it's convenient? Is he the one that we worship? Or is he the one we nod to as we pass? Hosanna or crucify him? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are this day that you sent your son, that he came that day in Jerusalem. Father, put us in that first crowd. Help us maintain in that first crowd. Use your Holy Spirit to help us keep the perspective that we need to have and to keep things in proper order. And Father, if there's anyone here that does not yet know Christ as Savior, we ask, Father, that they'll just make a note on this bulletin for us to contact them and to talk with them. You love them as they are. We want them to have the benefit of your salvation. Now guide together in this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.